1991, my grandmother died. She had really helped raise me. And she died, you know, and I was there with her. It was, it was during a period of dry, six months of dry time during my attempts to get sober. And I remember I went with her every day and I cared for her during that time. And it was a real blessing. It was kind of an awakening time for me, even though I relapsed on her morphine after she died in hospice. During the time of her death, I was there with her. And I was standing next to her graveside in her backyard where we had dug, I had dug a hole in her, uh, her rose garden and, and, and I had carried out her ashes and we were burying the ashes and I poured the ashes in the ground and I covered them with dirt and put the stone marker that I still have at my house over that grave and my held hands with my family. And my mom started singing Amazing Grace and I didn't sing. And the reason I didn't sing is I didn't understand why I didn't have any feelings. I knew that I should have feelings. It was 1991, two years before I got sober. I was sober six months without working the steps. And I was so broken that the, a woman I love more than any person in my life, I could not even cry for her death. So flash forward four years. I'm a couple years sober. Carolyn T is picking up her chip and celebrating the change in her life. And I am crying like a man for the first time in my life because some of my defects of character, some of my selfishness, some of my fear had been alleviated. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you're all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12 step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride, take what you want, and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Well, howdy, folks. That thar was the voice of Mr. David G that you heard at the beginning of this episode today. And you're going to hear plenty more from him in just a moment. But first things first. This episode is brought to you by Christina and Jeff. Christina and Jeff went to our website, SoberSpeak.com, clicked on the donate tab and made a contribution. Thank you so, so much, Christina and Jeff, for your generosity. This episode is for you. All right, so What's on my mind today? My, what is on my mind is this. It is thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for subscribing to the show. Uh, thank you for writing the emails that you do. Thank you for following, following me on Instagram uh, and commenting on the post. Uh, thank you for joining in on the secret Facebook group. Uh, thank you for writing the reviews on uh, Apple Podcasts or iTunes and the other podcast players where you write your reviews. Uh, you 
folks make me feel like we are doing God's work and God's hand is in all of this. You know, I'm just another bozo on the bus like you guys trying to figure this out a day at a time, but but I'm so thankful for all that you do and all the encouragement that you provide. Uh, you are absolutely fantastic. And I want to say this, that as usual, I couldn't do this without not only you guys listening in and all the encouragement and all the feedback that I get and all the feedback that I see going on amongst you all, but I couldn't do this without my wife, my beautiful bride, who was the one who really helped jumpstart this in the beginning uh, when I had some ideas rolling around my head. And I also want to thank Miss Cassandra. Miss Cassandra is a sweet, sweet Al-Anon lady who has volunteered to help. And, and, and all those Instagram posts that you all see out there, Miss Cassandra is taking care of all that, and I'm so appreciative of it. And I even had... Uh, a friend uh, who listens to Sober Speak the other day, Mr. Jim, out of the goodness of his heart, he goes and he tries to find speakers and make contacts and and put me in touch with people who may be a good guest on the program. And, 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 and he goes way out of his way to do it, uh, more than anything I have ever seen. And, and I'm so appreciative of that. You know, I did not expect this, but this podcast, this Sober Speak podcast has become more than just a podcast. It has become a community. And uh, and I always thought in the beginning when we first started out that I was just going to do a podcast. Maybe I'd do a few. Some of my friends would listen in and then maybe I'd do something once a month or so just for grins. But it's become much more than that. It, it has become a community. Um, we have people in the Facebook group asking questions about sponsorship, about amends. We have people celebrating birthdays and anniversaries. And uh, I can't tell you how much joy that brings me. So um, come on in the group. Uh, Put any kind of questions or ideas that you have out there. Um, I know there are others who can share their experience, strength, and hope with just about any topic you have. Now, I say just about because I know there are some people like me who are always going to test the waters. And so I've been thinking about this. I've been thinking about how can I get you guys more involved in these episodes, in these podcasts. And so if you could, for me, go out to our secret Facebook group, for those of you who are in there, and and post whatever sort of questions that you would like me to give to any sort of the future guests that are coming on the episode. Just some sort of generic type questions that I could pose to any of the guests who come in here. They have incredible experience, strength, and hope, and I would like them to have some of your questions. I have my own questions, but I know that you have some great questions out there. So once again, if you want to get in that secret Facebook group, just email me your email associated with your Facebook account to John, J-O-H-N, at SoberSpeak.com. If you want to follow us on Instagram, uh, I am at, uh, at SoberSpeak, all one word. Now, 
on to Mr. David G. Enjoy this. And remember, we're going to have plenty of listener feedback from you guys at the end of this episode. Enjoy, David. Okay, everybody. So today we are sitting here again with Mr. David G. Um, Last time we had David in, by the way, David's got several other episodes on Sober Speak. Just go back and look through the list. Uh, He probably has four or five different episodes on here. But the most recent episode we did with David uh, was Step 4 of Alcoholics Anonymous. That was the actual title of the episode. And when David came in to do Step 4, we thought that day we were going to get through Steps 4, 5, and 6. But... We actually, because step four is so uh, rich in content, uh, rich in discussion topics, we just got through step four. In fact, we didn't even get all the way through step four. So what we're going to do now is pick up with David, and he's going to talk a little bit about where we left off with step four, and then we're going to go into step five and kind of see where we get from there. So say hello again, Mr. David. Hi, everybody. All right, so step four, we got through basically the uh, all of it except for the sane and sex, excuse me, sane and ideal where sex is concerned, right? Yep. So why don't you go ahead and kind of pick it up from there and we'll see where we go. Yeah, it's not that much of a surprise that we would talk about step four for so long. I don't know why we didn't anticipate that, um, but there's just so much about having to learn how to take inventory of my behavior. You know, I was like an expert for years and still am, frankly, I wish I was better at taking other people's inventory and and seeing where they have made mistakes and where they're wrong. Um, And so this fourth step, the first time I did it, it was a it was a completely new experience in looking at the world, looking at the world from the perspective of how I justified the way I treated people by judging them and thinking they kind of deserved my bad uh, behavior. Um, so anyway, we got we got up into the sex inventory and we talked about it and how it really isn't a, a sexapade inventory. Nowhere in the fourth step in the big book does it tell us to list out um, our seediest behaviors. It asks us to list out our relationships and it asks us it kind of asks us to put those relationships and test them in terms of you know how we were manipulative, how we controlled. It uses phrases like "Did we arouse suspicion or jealousy?" And, and then at the end of that paragraph, it makes this statement, and it says, and through this, we develop a sane and sound sex ideal for our future conduct. In other words, now I've looked at these relationships I've had with people. Um, I've looked at how I've treated them. What, what has been the outcome of the relationships? Uh, in most of them, the outcome has not been good. You know, it, It's kind of like everybody you date or have a sexual relationship with, uh, eventually you're going to break up or get married, and you only hopefully marry one or maybe two or three people in your life. So if you're anything like me, you have a lot more partners for romance than that. And what is the wind up? Do these people uh, walk away from you feeling like they are better for have knowing you, uh, better for have yeah, better for have knowing you, or do they walk away from this relationship feeling like they've been tricked or duped or mistreated? And the truth about me is that probably um, it was a mix. You know, I have friends uh, that I was in romantic relationships with many years ago, and we're friends, and it's very friendly and cordial. And occasionally, I'll hear from them, particularly with Facebook, the way it is. Um, and, and there's no hard feelings in some of them. I know that those people will never forgive the way I treated them. 
And so now I'm looking at myself. This is this inventory thing. I'm not looking at them and how they didn't give me what I wanted or didn't act the way I thought they should or the way they hurt me. I'm looking at my behavior towards other people. And and when I do that, I have to look at how this has affected me. What has been the outcome internally of the way I've treated other people in these romantic or sexual relationships? Do I feel better about myself as a person? When I look at that person and the relationship I had with them, how it how it went on and how it ended and how the ending grew inside of me, did it grew, grow like a cancer? Or is it something I looked back on with kind of like, yeah, that was a wonderful time in my life. And sadly... Um, most of those situations were things that I regretted, that I had shame about, you know, that I felt guilty, you know. Um, so let's let's talk about that just a little bit, because shame is something, oh, it's kind of a, a little bit of a buzzword nowadays, but most people can relate to it, right? right? I know I've had shame myself, uh, and how does shame manifest itself in our sex relations? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, some of the shame is actually like childhood shame, you know, even if there was no sexuality going on, just the thoughts, you know, kind of the this kind of duplistic person where I'm acting like these things are bad and I'm so interested in them. You know, it's like I was the kid who, if you told me not to do something, it's all I wanted to do. (laughs) And certainly once I became sexualized, that became an issue. And so then this was one of the very first areas of my life where I had to be a different person to the world around me than I knew I was in private. And that's where shame started for me. You know, what I, over the years and particularly over the past few years, have really realized is that the behavior that I can't share with the world, and I may call it private behavior, personal behavior, and certainly not everyone wants to hear about my sexuality, but if you have a right to know who and what I am because you have committed your life or your feelings to me, and I am participating in behavior that I have to hide or disguise from you or disguise in a way that I get you to do and be what I, I want you to be to satisfy my needs. That to me is where the shame comes in. You know, there's a great line in the 12 and 12. It's talking about character defects and it says something like this. This is an exact quote. It says, since most of us have an abundance of natural desires, it isn't strange that sometimes these outgrow their intended purpose. Just to the extent that these go beyond God's intended purpose is the measure of our character defects, or if you wish, our sins. And so that idea of where there's nothing wrong with me wanting romance in my life, but if I'm going to lie and deceive you so that I can get romance, or if I'm going to make you feel guilty so that you give me what I want, or worse, if I'm going to do things for you with the expectation that you're going to reciprocate with what I want, then I am all of a sudden going from having a loving, caring, honest relationship to forcing my will on another person. And to the extent that I do that, this is where I think character defects occur. And like I've said about many things in my life, the worst thing about being a jerk is feeling like a jerk. Even when I get my way, I feel bad about myself because I know deep down inside that I am harming another person with my behavior. And so that to me is where the shame comes from. Yes, I'm ashamed of desires that I think are maybe wrong or immoral, but really the shame comes from the harm I've caused other people. 
So this idea of a sane, sound sex ideal isn't necessarily about what behavior I'm going to participate in across the board. We don't all have the same morality. We don't have the same desires. You know, it may be very easy for me not to do something because I really don't enjoy it and look at you as a weak person because you enjoy it and you do it. And that's really not fair. This is an individual thing. What behavior am I comfortable living in that I don't develop shame in my life? What behavior can I look in the eyes of the people who love me and honestly tell them this is who and what I am and not feel like I'm lying to them, not tricking them, not making them believe I'm something that I'm not? Because just like I've talked about in these previous things that you and I have done together, one of the things that I did, and I hear people in AA do all the time, is I created the facade that I thought you wanted me to be so I could get what I wanted from you. In the book, it says we'd hardly be human if we didn't have sex problems. Mm-hmm. We're looking to shape a, an, an ideal sex life moving forward, sex slash relationships in my life moving forward. Is there anything else that you want to put in there to kind of wrap up? Uh, step four before we move on to step five? Well, I think it's a wrap up by moving into step five, because here's the problem with everything we've talked about to this point. I'm looking at this myself. I'm looking this through the lens of how it has affected me and in my very narrow viewpoint of the world. So I was thinking about this, you know, as I was getting ready uh, to come over here about how many fifth steps I've done. You know, I've been sober over 25 years. I've participated in probably 20 formal step studies. And in every one of those step studies, I did a formal fifth step, you know, above and beyond or whatever you want to call it, just a daily inventory, you know, that type of thing. And in those fifth steps, I've had all different kinds of experiences. So the first one, was the most profound because the first one was sufficient to give me to this point lifelong sobriety. You know, my, my life ends today. The fifth step that I did in 1993 with my sponsor provided me lifelong sobriety. Um, but the the ones that I've had subsequent to that have dealt with a lot of issues because you know just because I'm sober that doesn't mean I don't a have problems and b cause problems. You know, one of the difficulties about uh, being a recovered alcoholic is is this old joke in AA that when you sober up a horse thief, what you have is a sober horse thief. But it goes beyond that because what you have when you have a sober horse thief is you have a better horse thief. And the better horse thief is better at deception, is better at keeping track of their lies, is better at keeping track and keeping score with the people they're in relationships with. In other words, I can't just apply these principles towards the way I drank and used drugs and the behaviors that I participated in them at that time. This this program and these fifth steps that I've done through the years is applying to the world about me as a sober guy. And so when we talk about what's next, how do we develop this, the first thing I have to do is once I've written all this stuff down, I have to go sit in front of someone that understands what I'm trying to accomplish, to hopefully to some extent has a comprehension of what the 12 steps are about. I know that people do it with their priests and their psychiatrists, and I've heard people do it with cab drivers and strangers on the street at bus stops and all that stuff. And I'm not mocking that. I mean, it sounds a little funny to me. And, and usually I feel like when people share that in meetings that they're kind of 
kind of joking about the person at the bus stop, you know, uh, maybe not about their priest or their psychiatrist. But what I have done every year that I've done it is I've done it with someone in the program who I believe has worked the 12 steps and is in rec- has recovered from the hopeless state of mind and body. And let's just pause real quick. And uh, there's going to be a lot of people listening to this who may not know exactly what a fifth step is. I know a large portion of our audience will, but the fifth step is admitted to God to ourselves, and to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. Correct. All right. So I'm sorry, go ahead for So I've had tons of experiences with, I've had it where I've read my fifth step to people and they've kind of politely listened and said, good job. And that's been good for me because I've gotten stuff out. But for the most part, And in particular with a few different people, and certainly with my sponsor the first time I went through the steps, I mean, at times when I was reading my take on what had happened and what, you know, what the steps were pointing me in the direction of, they, you know, politely smiled at me and then said, you know, you came up with this all on your own, didn't you? (laughs) Because I do delude myself. It's nearly impossible for me to follow some of the instructions in the book. I'll give you an example. In the resentment inventory, it says putting out of our minds the wrongs others had done entirely. Entirely? Entirely is a big word. Entirely. We resolutely look where the fault was our own. Where were we to blame? Though the situation had not been entirely our fault, there's that entirely word. Mm -hmm. In those types of instructions, that's where I need this other person. You know, I've already admitted these things to God when I've written them down on paper. The, the, the purpose of the fifth step, in my view, is to be with someone that I trust, that I know has my best interest in mind, that I don't feel threatened by, is not involved in my personal life. You know, I wouldn't do my fifth step with my mom or my wife or my sister, you know, because they love me, not because they don't have my best interest in mind, but because they've been involved in this, they have their perspective on this. I like to do this with a person who really is a fresh set of eyes, who can just hear what I'm saying in a vacuum and tell me what exactly it is that they hear. And I'll tell you, when I am doing a fifth step with a newcomer, and this happened with me, with my, with my sponsor, Clovis, and I'll just talk about it from my perspective with him. He started pointing out to me during my fifth step kind of extreme selfishness on my part, particularly when I was doing really hard ones, like with my dad. You know, my dad and I, we had a beautiful relationship the last 10, 15 years of his life. I mean, it was wonderful. It was the relationship I'd always wanted to have with my dad. He died in 2012, so I was 19 years sober when he passed away. And, you know, the last 10, 15 years of his life, we were close. Um, But at the point that I did my fifth step with Clovis in 1993, around Christmas, I couldn't stand my dad. I still had several years where I had enormous resentment toward my dad. No matter how many fifth steps I did, he was a repeat offender for the first eight or nine years of my sobriety. Um, And I didn't mean for that to be the case. It's just when I thought about the things that had happened in my life with him, including things that happened during my sobriety with him, because just because I got sober, that didn't mean he did that didn't instantly mean I had credibility with him. So what do you mean by repeat offender during the first part of your sobriety? I mean, it didn't, my first fifth step where I looked at my part and put out of my mind entirely, which I entirely could not do. I was entirely impossible for me to put out of my mind the wrongs he had done. Because in my view, a lot of the things that had happened, happened when I was a kid. And I 
viewed myself as blameless when I was a kid. I didn't see how an adult wasn't responsible for taking full responsibility for whatever bad things happen in the relationship with their children. Now, as a grown man who has had children and now has grandchildren, has an experience being the parent, what I recognize is I was not a pleasant little kid. I was very demanding, very selfish, very spoiled. My dad was a human being. He did not have the ability to put me in a vacuum where he ignored my horrible behavior. I was bad at school. I stole. I set fires. I mean, that was just like the first 20 things, three of 20 things on the list of things that made me very hard to be around. And I had some expectation up until just maybe 10, 15 years ago that somehow my dad was supposed to be so spiritual that he could just overcome all that and be cool with it. And so this putting out of your mind entirely the wrongs others had done and then resolutely looking where the fault is my own, I needed help with this. And even though I got help from Clovis, when he pushed me on it, it aroused anger in me. When he started pressing me on the way I acted when I was a kid, the way I stole from my dad, the way, the best way I can describe it, and I never thought of this consciously until I'd been sober for a while, maybe 10 years, like the moment my dad's sperm penetrated my mom's egg, instantly I believed deep down inside that everything that belonged to them was now mine, and the sooner they gave it to me, the better off everyone would be. Like, if they went on a vacation, why don't I get to go on a vacation? If they got a new car, why don't I get a new car? You know, I just had such a selfish, spoiled, self-centered view of the world, particularly of my parents and their stuff, that I never was able to look at my parents for a long time as anything but a provider of stuff. And I can tell you as a parent, when you have that happen in your life, and my kids were much better to me than I was to my parents, it's hard to take, you know? And so my my sponsor, Clovis, and I did my first two or three fifth steps with him, he really helped me to start looking at that. That being eight years old and a little jerk doesn't mean you're not a little jerk. It just means you're an eight-year-old little jerk. And if your parents treat you like a little jerk when you're acting like a little jerk, that doesn't mean there's something wrong with them. That's the appropriate response. (laughs) What brings that on is acting like that. And I didn't like the consequences of behaving, like I said a few minutes ago, if you told me not to do something, it's exactly what I wanted to do. I found the things that you told me I should be doing, like reading, homework, going to school, Sunday school, singing in choir practicing the piano or soccer, they were the most boring things in the world to me. Whereas sneaking out uh, of the house, climbing on people's roofs, egging houses, flipping trash cans, setting them on fire. I mean, I don't know why. That's just what appealed to me. And I had parents who had to cope with that kid. And let me tell you, it didn't get any better when I got into puberty. I understand. Yeah. So anyway, these fifth steps. So here we are talking about this stuff at a very kind of like remedial human being spirituality level, because I'm just into AA. I have this huge 26-year list of acting like a jerk, basically, for when I could start walking. I mean it. I'm not... I learned how to write my name when I was about three years old. Everyone... Oh my gosh, David can write. Oh my gosh. So David got excited and went and got a chair and went into his grandparents' bedroom and took a knitting needle and scratched his name into the surface of my grandparents' antique dresser. Oh no. That's the kind of stuff I did at three years old. 
Right? And I just was really resentful of the responses I got from people, the spankings I got, the punishments I got, the 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 things that were withheld from me because of that. You know, this is why these things take so long, because for you to really understand what makes me tick, you have to hear these things. That's what a fifth step is about. For another person to really understand the way I tick, we have to get into this kind of detail about who we are. It can't be this for me, this general checklist. I was selfish, self-centered, fearful, blah, blah, blah. And some people do it that way. But I tell you what, the longer I stay sober, the more detailed I get on what my behavior was in my, in my resentment inventory, the behavior that I had made excuses for myself that I should be able to treat you that way. In my fear inventory, the behavior that I did because I was fearful that I wasn't going to get what I wanted. And at the very worst and kind of most low life stages of my behavior, that I could do these things behind your back sexually because you weren't giving me what I wanted. And it all made sense to me. And it had to be torn open, put in the light, washed off and, and, and dealt with. And that's really what this fifth step is about. All right, let me take a little break here. We'll be continuing our conversation with David G., In just a moment, just a reminder, you are listening to Sober Speak. You can find us on the web at SoberSpeak.com. There you'll find our 70 or so plus other episodes you can listen to for free. You can also find the donate button on our website. If the spirit moves you to use it, you can. Uh, Please keep in mind this is a podcast funded by you, the listener. Sober Speak is a self-supporting organization through our own contributions. We are not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. We do not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorse nor oppose any causes. Okay, now back to David G. So, as you know, there is a line in the big book that says, if we don't take this vital step, we may not overcome drinking. Mm Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on why that line is in the book? Well, let me tell you my experience with that. So in December of 1993, I sat in this used car lot office looking over the used car lot with a reading lamp. My sponsor was in front of the window. He was the the, uh, security guard watching the lot. So no one, I guess, stole the cars. And, um, and I was doing my fifth step with him. And over the course of that fifth step, which lasted about three, four hours, I had all sorts of emotions from some anger in the beginning during my resentments to really some cathartic stuff during my sex inventory where I was able to begin grieving some things that I had never grieved, you know? Um, and I remember at the end of that, uh, closing that spiral, I can still picture it in my head. And when I closed it, I felt like something had changed inside of me. And when I went to my meeting, I went home that night and I did my sixth and seventh step from the big book, which we're going to talk in a lot more detail here in a few minutes. And I slept really good that night. I I don't know if it's because I was exhausted or I had been freed from some things. It doesn't really matter. I slept really good. And I remember I went to the noon meeting at the Trinity group that next day. And when I went in the meeting and I was sitting with all the different people, I began for the first time and remember, I started AA in 1987 at the you know forced hand of my parents. And here it was December of 1993, and I had finally done a real fifth step. And I sat in that meeting, and I felt like I related to and understood and had empathy for and care and love for every person in that room. 
And I remember looking around at the different people, the different characters, the ones that maybe before I would have said, you know, I love everyone, but I don't like everybody. You know, that kind of creepy way people lash out passive aggressively at the room. (laughs) You know, anytime someone says, I don't give a bleep about what everyone thinks about me, you know that that's all they really care about. (laughs) And I had been that guy, right? That kind of chip on the shoulder and the chip on my shoulder was gone. And the idea that it mattered whether I liked or didn't like, I really understood that everyone in that room was there for the exact same reason I was. Whether they were two days sober or 30 years sober, they were sitting in that room needing to continually have the experience that I had just had. And after seven years or six and a half years of being a regular member of Alcoholics Anonymous, doing that fifth step was a crossing over point for me. And it says that you, you're getting your book out. I bet you're going to read that thing. You know, it says we go to it illuminating every dark cranny of the past. And then it says before, you know, we're delighted. We can work, look the world in the eye, no matter what our thoughts were about our creator before this point, we begin to have, and I don't know if it says conscious, you know what I mean? Broad highway of the universe. Yeah. We're walking hand in hand. And you know, that's for years, that sounded like a lot of BS to me. And after I did my first, you know, real fifth step, following the instructions from the book with an AA member who had had a spiritual experience and had recovered, I began to feel completely, you know, I may not have walked hand in hand with the spirit of the universe, but I began walking hand in hand with the people in Alcoholics Anonymous. Oh, here's what I'm struggling with. Do we remain on step five? Because we could. There's so many different things to stay about, stay about step five. But let's go ahead and uh, uh, move on to step six. Yeah. You got anything else you want to say about step No, five? because step six, first of all, I want to give a little plug for the 12 and 12. Some of the most powerful writing about step six is in the 12 and 12. It really, I'm sure over the next 15, 20 minutes, I'm going to spontaneously quote some things that just mean a lot to me. I just want to let everybody know I do not sit at home studying these things, that I read this stuff over and over with my sponsees and for myself because I need to hear it. And, um, you know, so let's, uh, just real quick. Yep. Step six is we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. And seven is humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. So it's talking about defects of character, shortcomings, as everyone says, you know, Bill just picked to basically a different word to describe the same thing. Yep. So I just wanted to kind of level set there for maybe the folks who don't know what six and seven is all about. Right. So my, my sponsor, my original sponsor, he used to say all the time that he wasn't a bad person trying to get good. He was a sick person trying to get well. I'm not sure I always agreed with Clovis on that. And the only reason I say that isn't to be contrary or think I know something he didn't, that the things that made me a bad person came out of my sickness. And so when I say that I'm a sick person trying to get well, how I know that I'm sick, you know, it's like that there's a Bible verse, you shall know them by their fruits. You knew me by my fruits. You knew me by the way I affected the people in the world around me by the quality of my relationships. And so you take the alcohol and drugs out of my, you know, out of the equation. And yes, I do become much more tolerable. I mean, you're going to like me better when I'm not stealing your stuff and trading it for crack. (laughs) That's right. That's a given, right? You're going to like me better when I, it's a better chance I'm going to show up. And when I show up, I'm not high or drunk. Um, You're going to like me better when I don't ruin your wedding by stealing cameras from your other guests so that I can run to a a dealer in a town I've never been to and 
use all night. Okay, so those those things that happen as a result of drinking and drugging, when you remove those from my life, I immediately become a more tolerable and interesting person. <laughs> right. So what's the problem? Why isn't it that you just don't put the plug in the jug and everything's fine? You know, it reminds me of that line in the big in the 12 and 12 and I don't know what chapter it's in, and it says alcoholics don't mind calling themselves problem drinkers, but they really struggle to call themselves mentally ill. And, you know, mental illness is, first of all, alcoholism is considered a mental illness by the doctors of our country, but that's not really even the point. The word mental illness is not necessarily about me having some medicatable thing. It's what is it that makes me need a drink so bad? Why is it that the way I view life and the way I carry on my relationships becomes something that causes a pain in me that needs to be anesthetized, that causes a discomfort in me that a, that a few drinks takes the edge off of. Why do I need the edge taken off of my life? Um, and I think it goes to my defects of character. Now, underlying these defects of character are already things that we've talked about. Fear underlies my defects of character. It talks about how fear creates. It's shot through the fabric of our lives. It sets, an emo- it sets in motion sequences of events that cause us misfortune. And how it sets those things off, for me, is in my character defects. Um, you could talk about specific behaviors. You could say that the behavior somehow is the defect of character. The behavior is the symptom of the defect of character. I don't steal from you because I have a defective character that makes me steal. I steal from you because I'm dishonest enough to steal from you. The reason I steal from you is the underlying defective character, which is even underlied by fear that I'm not going to get what I want unless I take it from someone else. My willingness to steal it from you is a moral issue, right? Everybody kind of would like something for nothing. The problem with me is you get me drunk enough or even sometimes sober, I'm willing to take what I want because I want it and it's you have it and it doesn't really matter to me that you're not going to have it anymore. Now, the way you react to me and the way you retaliate, again, we talk about that all the time, selfishness and self-centeredness, that we think is the root of all our troubles, driven by a hundred forms of fear through our character defects. We step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate. Seemingly without provocation. Seemingly. Because the only reason it's seemingly, because I'm not honest enough with myself to see what I do to people. So these defects of character that we've been talking about in this inventory, in this fifth step, the defects of character is something that me knowing what they are is not going to remove them. I don't, just because I know that I have defects of character, that does not solve the defect of character problem. But what I have found is the defects of character that I'm not aware of, I don't have a chance. And I've had those in sobriety, and I sure had them when I was drinking. In fact, when I was drinking, I was pretty much this blind, walking around, being pushed by my id, you know, my natural desires, get what I want, how am I going to get what I want, life's a party, you die young, you know. Um, But now that I'm sober, here's some symptoms. A lot of people get sober for their girl. They got to have their girl back. I mean, I have guys that sit with me all the time, and I was one of those guys. My wife left me. I was, I was married two weeks to my pregnant wife who left me because of my last relapse. So my sobriety date is two and a half weeks after my wedding date, and she was gone for a while. And, and so here's the character defect. I 
was desperate for her and had many times in the past with other girlfriends and other people in my life been desperate to have her back. Her in the general sense of the woman who had left me because of what I was as a drug addict. After a few weeks of getting her back, then I start to remember why I needed a drink. That's right. Right? Because of my defects of character. My defects of character didn't allow me to enjoy my relationships. My defects of character, I call it catching an edge. I could be sitting at a dinner table and just have one thing not go my way and just immediately have a sharp word come out of my mouth because I wasn't getting my way. Remember selfishness, self-centeredness. And all of a sudden, everything about our relationship changes and I don't know how to get the mood back. I don't know how to turn things back around. So here I am sitting in my own mess that is caused because I have these like cravings to get my way out, get my way all the time. And I don't even really recognize what those are. So back to the 12 and 12. In step six and the 12 and 12, it really kind of, it doesn't mock us because that's not the right word. It kind of reads our mail a little bit. It talks about how we're apt to congratulate ourselves for giving up these huge issues like stealing and and <laughs> beating people and, you know, whatever. Right. Because And it says we're apt to congratulate ourselves for things that were ruining our life anyway. I mean, it's like congratulating myself because I quit smoking crack or congratulate myself because I quit blackout drinking. (laughs) That's really not something to congratulate you for. It's to be grateful for, but it's not to really pat myself on the back and say, hey, I don't get drunk and beat you up anymore. Isn't that wonderful? (laughs) That's not the way the world looks at it, nor is it the way I should look at it. But we do that. And the book kind of mocks us that way. But then it starts to really read our mail. It really starts to talk about how these things really exhibit in our day-to-day personal life. Because most of us, when we're sober, are not walking around being verbally and physically abusive. We're not robbing our uh, our uh, uh, partners or our business uh, uh, people. What we're doing is we're gossiping. We're talking about other people. We act as if we're talking about it in some conversational way, as if we're being helpful in some way, or just, hey, I want to let you know about what John Cole's been doing. But really what the truth is, is I don't want I don't know how to rely on God for my self-esteem. In other words, I don't necessarily understand when people say, you know, God is your source. God is going to... I don't always understand that. But I can tell you what, putting other people down, gossiping about other people, negating who they are as people because of mistakes they've made is a real cheap way to elevate myself. And the, the hard part about it is I immediately feel worse about myself as a person for being the guy who has to do that, whether I know it or not. Character defects. If I don't know I have a character defect, I am going to continuously be a victim of that character defect. But once it's pointed out to me through good sponsorship, through my fifth step, when my sponsor's talking about someone at work who I couldn't see where I had a part, and, and, and my sponsor said, well, did you ever talk about him to other people? Well, yeah, I, sure, of course. He's an a-hole. Of course I talked about him. <laughs> did uh, you ever say negative things about him, insult him as a person to other people who were friends of his? Yeah, I guess I did that. Well, why are you okay with that? 
Those were the type of things that I learned about. And here's the beautiful thing, and I'll tell you a story. So my sponsor's sponsor, this guy Bill Cheney, was a great guy in AA. He was not a close friend of mine, but he was, he was there for many years of my sobriety. And Bill, I don't think he had a lot of use for me. He was nice enough to me, but I don't think he had a lot of use for me. And I knew him in early sobriety when I was even more brash and more obnoxious. And I remember I was maybe a year and a half sober, and I go to Clovis, and I've already worked the steps, and I'm doing well. And um, I say to Clovis, you know, Bill, you know, and I'm here, I'm talking about his sponsor, first of all. You know, Bill, he talks about how he does things for other people, and he's such good to newcomers, and he carries the message. And yet I walk up to talk to him, and it's not five seconds after I say hello that he turns his back and walks away from me. Or if I sit down at a table that he's sitting at and try and strike up a conversation, it's not two minutes later that I notice that he's gone to get coffee and is sitting at another table. And so I'm expecting... I don't know what I'm expecting, truthfully, but jokingly, I'm expecting that that Clovis is going to say, well, you know, Bill can be that way, you know, don't take it personal, he can just, that's the kind of guy he is, he's a little aloof. No, that was not the answer. <laughs> Clovis said, well, you know, David, sometimes you're really not that enjoyable to be around. <laughs> and so I look at him like, he goes, well, you know, like someone has to, tells a story about a vacation they're on. And like you wait for the very first moment to interrupt them and tell them about your vacation. Or someone's talking about where they went to school and you, you, you just obviously aren't listening to them. And then the moment you get a chance, you talk about where you went to school or what championships you won or blah, 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 blah. And I heard it and it really hurt my feelings because I knew that Clovis was telling me this from his own experience. Because once he told me I did that, I could not not know that I did that. And so what happened, it was humiliating. I felt humiliated because Clovis was like a, a god to me. I hate to say that, but he was like Renee at our group says, he was my god with skin on, you know? Maybe Clovis didn't get me sober. Maybe God got me sober before Clovis got came along. God wasn't getting me sober. So for Clovis to say this to me really hurt. But what I started to notice and obviously, I'm still working the steps. I'm doing my five alive every day. I'm going, you know, I'm doing all the things I'm supposed to do. I'm sponsoring people. What I started to notice is when I began to perpetrate that exact behavior, I recognized it. And so a change happened in me. And the change was when people started telling me about what was going on in their life, where they were going on a vacation, where they had been, I started to listen to them for their excitement. And started to pay attention for how excited they were and what their experience was. And I thought to myself, man, I'd love to go there someday and do what you did. What was your favorite part of the trip? And I began to actually become interested in what their favorite part of the trip was. And I began to view them as like important people, people who mattered. You know, what happened to me as a child during my drug addiction I don't know when or how it happened, but the importance of other people around me lessened and lessened and lessened. It must have something to do with what they mean when they say we're self-centered in the extreme. And, and learning these things about myself, learning that the same girlfriend I couldn't live without all of a sudden drove me crazy, that the same job I, couldn't, I had to have all of a sudden they didn't treat me right and they didn't pay me enough and I was the only one there that worked, knowing that people didn't want to be around me because I only wanted to talk about myself. These were not great things to hear, 
But my God, they were great things to hear because I began through the program and through my relationship with God to unravel some of this stuff. So there's this woman, her name was Carolyn T. She, I don't know where she is now. She was an attorney. She went to the Trinity Group and we used to sit in meetings together for years. And for years after I had worked the steps and was getting sober, Carolyn finally got sober. And here's the thing about Carolyn. She would share things about her life, and it doesn't matter. I won't share her story. But she would share things about her life and what she'd been through, and I would listen to them, and I would think, my God, I would drink too. It was painful, real painful stuff. She would share them in open meetings in our non-smoking group. And I was there the night she picked up her one-year chip, and I knew what a big deal it was for her to pick up that one-year chip because I had been with her, and I had heard her pain, and I had heard her struggle that staying sober wasn't for her because she couldn't stand the way sober felt. And I remember all that she said. She got up there, and she was a very well-spoken person, and the only words she could get out of her mouth were, I finally given up my right to a better past, and it was breathtaking. And something happened. I felt down my face and there were tears running down my face. And I telling you for the first time in my life, or in my adult life for sure, I was crying the way adults cry when they experience empathy and gratitude for another person. And what I mean by that, for so many years of my life, I cried like a child. I cried when I wasn't getting my way, when I wanted you to forgive me. But I wasn't crying out of sadness or out of gratitude. In 1991, my grandmother died. She had really helped raise me. She was, my parents uh, both were in the middle of a drug addiction, successful professionals who, you know, smoked pot all day and all night. And my grandmother would come and care for me and I would stay with her and she would clean our house. And Nana was my biggest fan. Uh, no matter what I did, Nana would go, Oh, don't you mess with, don't bother David. He's going to be fine. <laughs> I mean, I could have stolen the car and wrecked it. And she'd be like, it's going to be fine. David's doing fine. And she died, you know, and I was there with her. It was, it was during a period of dry six months of dry time during my attempts to get sober and I remember I went with her every day and I cared for her during that time. And it was a real blessing. It was kind of an awakening time for me, even though I relapsed on her morphine after she died in hospice. During the time of her death, I was there with her. And I was standing next to her graveside in her backyard where we had dug, I had dug a hole in her, uh, her rose garden. And, and, and I had carried out her ashes and we were burying the ashes and I poured the ashes in the ground and I covered them with dirt and put the stone marker that I still have at my house over that grave and my held hands with my family. And my mom started singing amazing grace and I didn't sing. And the reason I didn't sing is I didn't understand why I didn't have any feelings. I knew that I should have feelings. It was 1991, two years before I got sober. I was sober six months without working the steps. And I was so broken that the, a woman I love more than any person in my life, I could not even cry for her death. So flash forward four years. I'm a couple years sober. Carolyn T is picking up her chip and celebrating the change in her life. And I am crying like a man for the first time in my life because some of my defects of character, some of my selfishness, some of my fear had been alleviated. David, I think that's a, uh, 
it's a heartwarming story. I really appreciate you sharing that. I think it's a good place to wrap it up for this week. We'll continue some more. I know we got into six and seven a little bit. There may be some more to cover on one of our upcoming episodes. One thing I do want you to talk about there before we wrap up, you mentioned the five alive mm-hmm. and we're not really, we weren't, we didn't come in here for that, <laughs> right. that being a subject matter, but I think there are going to be people going, did he say five alive? <laughs> right. And what is that? So when I got my first meeting with my sponsor, Clovis had me read the doctor's opinion and highlight anything that sounded like the problem or the solution to the problem of alcoholism. And so then, like many sponsors, we got together, and he pulled his book out, and we went through and read. And we didn't read every word of every page, but we read everything that we had highlighted. And when it got to the point, in the doctor's opinion, and it says, strange as it may seem to those who do not understand, the same person who seemed doomed, who had so many problems he despaired of ever solving them, finally finds himself easily able to control his desire for alcohol as long as he follows a few simple rules. And my sponsor stopped me, and he said... Do you want to know what those few simple rules are? And I said, sure. And he had me open my spiral and write on the inside cover. I want you to write a few simple rules. And I wrote a few simple rules. And he said, one, when I wake up in the morning, I get on my knees and I ask God to keep me sober. Two, I read AA literature. Right now, that's your assignments, but we'll work on that once we get through the steps. Three, I go to a meeting every day. Yes, every day. Are there some days you can't? Yeah, there's some days you can't, but every day that you can, you go to a meeting. Four, talk to another alcoholic. That can be before or after the meeting. That can be me if you want to give me a call, but every day I want you to talk to another alcoholic. I prefer that you talk to the newcomer at the meeting who needs help like you needed help when you walked in. And number five, before you close your eyes and go to bed, thank God that you stayed sober today. That's five alive, folks. That's five alive. <laughs> I know it's a kind of a big deal down here in Texas. I don't know if it is in other areas or not, but uh, thank you for sharing that, David. God bless you. Uh, that was steps four, five, and six. We'll continue with David on uh, some episode in the future with, uh, excuse me, I said that was four, five, and six. That was five, six, and seven. There you go. We'll continue, probably wrap up a little bit more about six and seven on a future episode, but we'll definitely get into eight and nine. We got to talk about humility, right? That's right. That's right. (laughs) All right. God bless. Thanks again, David. Thanks. So what'd you think about Mr. David? If you have any comments for me uh, or for David... You can reach out to me at John, J-O-H-N, at SoberSpeak.com. I will make sure that David receives any comments about himself. Or if you want to reach out about any of the other speakers, uh, feel more than free to uh, write in. Uh, I sure would appreciate it. Okay, now it is time for some listener feedback. And uh, this comes from the absolute best listeners in the entire world world. And that would be you guys or y'all as we say down here in Texas. All right. April shares. She is writing in on our secret Facebook group. Uh, and it says, and she says, uh, just listen to Ryan L and just dot, dot, dot. Wow. 
So much good stuff in that, in particular about finding guardian angels where you least expect them and being the lighthouse. Thanks again for a great meeting between meetings. Thank you, April. And uh, April is referring to a couple of uh, segments within Ryan's uh, episode there. Uh, And if you don't know what she's talking about with the guardian angels and the lighthouse, uh, just go back and listen to that. Um, Kelly from Al-Anon writes in and Kelly says, hi, John, thank you so much for your podcast. I listen to it on my 30 plus minute drive to and from work on May 9th. I'll be celebrating my fourth Al-Anon birthday. Whoa. Happy birthday, Miss, uh, Kelly, well, almost, almost happy birthday. Anyway, I came from the rooms of Al-Anon because I was trying to control my son's father's substance abuse. He suffers from opioid addiction and he maintains with methadone. I did not, however, know until after attending the Al-Anon meeting that alcoholism runs in my family and that it was no fluke that I chose an addict as a partner. Although we are no longer together, I am so grateful that he is a part of my life for the many gifts I have been given, especially my son." If we, have, if we had ever been together, or if we had never been together, I would have never found Al-Anon, which is what I needed so badly due, the, due to the effects of my familial history and growing up with my non-drinking adult children of alcoholic parents. My son was four months old when I entered the program, and today he is four years old. I am so grateful to have found the program when I did because I know it was giving, because it has given me the tools to be a better mom, and of course, a better all-around person. Hearing about the Crested Butte Conference made me excited. I haven't had many opportunities to involve my son in Al-Anon functions because of his age, but that sounds like a perfect opportunity. I have been a member of the Al-Anon Committee on the San Diego Spring Roundup for three years now. But that is not very child-friendly. If you haven't been, or if you have already been there, I invite you to visit us one Easter weekend in San Diego. We don't have specific things for young children, but we do have Alateen, and of course, San Diego is beautiful. I would like to go to the Crested Butte Conference. Can you give me some tips about travel, lodging, etc.? Thank you so much, Kelly. Well, me and Kelly went back and forth a little bit. I sent her a link to the Crested Butte Conference. I will be going back there again this year. And uh, I kind of gave her some tips. I told her to look at the conference guide and let me know if she has any specific questions. But uh, anyway, Kelly, hope to see you again or hope to see you there this summer. Bree, I hope I got that name right, B-R-I-E, writes in on Instagram, and she is an Al-Anon member as well. She said, John, I recently started listening to your podcast as it was recommended to me by my boyfriend. Actually, I don't think she is an Al-Anon member. Anyway, I think it's going to come to to light here throughout this letter. He is a recovering alcoholic with one year sober in February. I have found your episodes so enlightening and helpful in my journey to better understand Matt. This is my first relationship with a PIR, and to say the least, it has been an (laughs) eye-opener. By the way, it took me a second, but I believe PIR means 
person in recovery, but I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. Anyway, to say I wasn't prepared at all would be an understatement. I live in a small town in Vermont, just 35 miles south of Bill W.'s birthplace in East Dorset, a quintessential New England town. I love that word, quintessential. But anyway, at the suggestion of my boyfriend and other books and podcasts, I am currently looking into Al-Anon meetings in my area. So I was right. She's not an Al-Anon member yet, but it looks like she may be heading that way. Your podcast, however, in particular, has stuck with me in hearing and better understanding the behaviors of an alcoholic. Well, good luck with that. I'm still trying to understand it myself, Ms. Bree. Anyway, both Matt and I have a long history of rocky relationships, and we are trying to work on taking things slowly, in all capital letters, and one day at a time. Things have been trying for me as well as him. You know that initial infatuation with a person when you have that spark and want to be with them all the time and dive headfirst into a pool? of what will be in six months a disaster? Will you mix that with everyday ups and downs and a dozens of alcoholics and trying to keep everything in check? Um, and I at times wonder which one of us has the problem. <laughs> I admittedly have many of my own laugh out loud. Anyway, I just want to let you know how much I appreciate you and your guest. Arlena A. spoke to me when she talked about relationships and I love and, and the love and the, and the desire to have money and things. Even a quote normie feels that on many levels. It's all I've ever wanted and I've been burned trying to get it. Keep up the great work and I'll be listening as well as Matt because I know it helps him. He sends me the episodes on Spotify when he hears ones that he relates to. So thank you for your good work, and may God continue to bless your podcast, Bree. Well, good luck both to you and uh, Matt there, Miss Bree. I sure do thank you writing in on Instagram. Uh, keep me posted. Uh, hopefully we'll hear from Mr. Matt someday. Huh? All right. Jeff writes in and Jeff says, hi, John. I was traveling recently and looking for a new podcast. I enjoy listening to the speakers while driving and running to take my mind off the road. That's how I found you while doing a podcast search. My sobriety date is November 15th of 2006. I've had my ups and downs through sobriety. However, the last year has been a challenge. Fortunately, the compulsion to drink was lifted early, so that hasn't been a problem. Life just seems to be a bit quote, hard this last year. My career, marriage, and the overall mental health was in a bad place. I found that I really had to make an effort to tell myself that God hasn't brought me this far to forget about me now. I know that God has this. I just have to remember to give it to Him. Thank you for all the work you do. I don't know the size of your audience. However, if you touch one person, you have succeeded. If ever in Charlotte, North Carolina, reach out to me and I'll take you to a meeting. AA is strong here and we are blessed. Jeff R. And he leaves a cell phone number. I guess I probably should not read that cell phone number here uh, on the air. What do you think? 
<laughs> Jeff Barr, thank you so much for the invite. And if I am in North Carolina, I will look you up and we can go to a meeting together. Deborah writes in and Deborah says, love your podcast. Three exclamation points. Ryan L. spoke an amazing message. I was also addicted to opioids. Could relate with his story so much. When he talked about the pain pills, taking your pain away, that hit home. The pills took away pain from everything. Last year when I got sober, the pool water hurt my skin. Um, the pills, uh, even when I was a hundred degree, when, even when it was a hundred degrees outside, the water felt like ice on my skin. It showed me how numb I was to everything. Thank you for this wonderful podcast. I listen to your podcast while I am working. I shop and deliver groceries for work. So this podcast really keeps me going. Very thankful. Three exclamation points. Keep up the good work. Two exclamation points. Thank you, Deborah R. Well, Deborah R., I'm glad we can provide some, I don't want to say entertainment, but I'm glad we can provide some uh, possibly inspiration and break from your own thoughts uh, while you are out doing your work. And I sure do appreciate you writing in, Deborah. And I'll pass on your message to Mr. Ryan L. Gracie writes in, and this one's short, sweet, and to the point. And Gracie, says, hey, I enjoy your laugh. Haters gonna hate. Keep being you or keep doing you. <laughs> Gracie, thank you so much. I appreciate it. And what she's referencing is, you know, I've had, I've had more emails and messages about my laugh and liking it or not liking it. I, I, like I said, I don't know what to do, but I am going to keep on being me. I appreciate you writing in, Gracie. By the way, usually when the people have written in about my laugh, they have not been uh, haters by any means. They're, they're just giving me suggestions. But uh, hey, you know, can't please all the people all the time. And I really actually haven't uh, appreciated the feedback. All right. Joe writes in and Joe says, hi, John. My name is Joe and I'm in central California. I found your podcast by typing AA and just started listening to random stations. They were good. All of the stations were good, but you're stuck with me. I'm 42 and I've been struggling with alcohol for a very long time. I've been in and out of treatment centers in AA, but could never seem to find my place. Or I would think that my story isn't as bad or as sad as some others, but listening to your podcast has been a big help. I've been binge listening to you on my way to work, on the way home. I can't seem to get enough. I'm realizing that even though I haven't hit bottom, it doesn't matter how sad or not my story may be, we're all on the same level. I've been going to meetings. I have phone numbers. I have people who understand. And most of all, I'm actually having hope. It may sound corny, but I think your show inspired me to go. Today will be my first day sober, and I don't even know how long, and I'm scared of the future and who I will become and what my wife and kids will go through. Either way, thank you for this show and the inspiring words. And thank you 
for all the speakers and for the sharing, Joe. Well, God bless you, Joe. Thank you so much for sharing that. I really do appreciate it. I hope I hear back from you and you made it past that first day sober. And you know what? Uh, You're right. We're all bozos on this bus trying to make it together. Um, At least I know I'm just another bozo on the bus and we all swim in the same water, my friend. So thank you for writing in. Cassandra writes in and she says, hey, I have been thinking about emailing you for quite a while and never seem to get around to it till now. I want to thank you for all the experience, strength, and hope you offered through your podcast. I've been a grateful Al-Anon member since mid-June 2018. Here's another Al-Anon member. I love it. And have been sober since, oh, June 23rd, 2018. So she got a little bit of both. It was through Al-Anon and working the 12 steps of AA uh, myself and Al-Anon that I realized that I had a problem with drinking, not just a problem with thinking. With that being said, I really enjoyed listening to Brenda J in episode 50. It has been an incredible journey the past nine months. And I thank you and your guests for being a big part of that. Keep up the good work. God bless you. Cassandra S. Well, Cassandra S., I'm glad that you made it both into the rooms of AA and Al-Anon. And thank you for your support. Thank you for listening. And finally, Mr. Jim writes in and Jim says, Hey, John, thanks so much for the episode this week with Ken H. What wisdom there. Not what sober men do. I agree. I agree with you that this episode is one to return to again and again. I went to a meeting tonight and the speaker was just awesome. He's been 30 four years sober. I will reach out to him and see if I can get him to talk with you. I think he would be a good episode, except that he has a bit of an old South accent. So you'll have to decide. Oh, we've had plenty of thick accents on this show, uh, Mr. Jim. Anyway, um, if he's amenable, I'll connect you to and let you decide. I have learned two things, John. First, my sobriety does not depend upon my relationship with a sponsor. It's between me and my higher power. Second, when I'm feeling a little down and wishing I had a sponsor to talk with, I come to Sober Speak and pick one of my favorites and listen again. I was listening to Gary Kay again last night while I was driving. I'm 89 days sober today, John. I'll get my 90-day chip this week. The compulsion to drink is gone by the grace of God. (laughs) By the grace of God. Thanks, John. Jim S. And I'm going to close it out here once again. I always like to read this as much as I can with page 164 of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And friends, if you're listening out there and you haven't read this for yourself, please open the book. It says, abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Thank you so much again this week for you folks listening in. 
I know you have so many other things you could do with your time, and I sure do appreciate it. God bless.